Welcome to Helix Talk, an educational podcast for healthcare students and providers covering real-life clinical pearls, professional pharmacy topics, and drug therapy discussions. This podcast is provided by pharmacists and faculty members at Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy. This podcast contains general information for educational purposes only. This is not professional advice and should not be used in lieu of obtaining advice from a qualified healthcare provider. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Helix Talk, episode 44. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Schumann. I'm Dr. Patel. So before we get started with today's podcast, I just wanted to mention that we now have a Twitter account. So if you want to tweet us or follow us on Twitter, we're at Helix Talk. Uh, you can also find a link at helixtalk.com to our Twitter account. So we'll be releasing new episode updates and other news and updates about Helix Talk in general through the Twitter account. So students, while you're studying really hard, make sure to tweet away. Today we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Eric Walters. He's a professor in the Pharmaceutical Sciences Department here at Roslyn Franklin University. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Good to be here. We've brought you on today because you are the expert in sweeteners. When we talk about sweeteners, we're talking about dietary sweeteners, things like sugar and uh, artificial sweeteners, and we'll kind of get more into that. But you know, this topic kind of came up because of a book that you published back in 2013. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And we'll kind of get into some questions that we have for you. Well, a long time ago, before I came here to the College of Pharmacy, I worked in the, uh, the food industry, specifically do, doing research on, on sweeteners. And I spent about nine years doing sweetener research. And I came here to the university the past 24 years. I've uh, done a lot of different kinds of research, but I've always sort of kept my eye, eye on sweeteners because I think it's a really interesting subject. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think that, you know, any listener to the podcast needs to be informed about the importance of things like how uh, prevalent diabetes is in the United States, how prevalent obesity is, and how uh, nutrition can play a role in both of those disease states, among many other disease states as well. Absolutely, and I'm particularly very excited because, you know, this is what I do in and out in the clinical practice too, hoping to learn a lot from this podcast and maybe, you know, answer some of the questions that my patient asked me about these sweeteners too. If the audience remembers, we recently published the 2015 uh, Dietary Guideline Revisions and in which we know that USDA now recommends no more than 10% of the daily calorie should come from sugar. And this is, I'm talking about added sugar. So now I think focus is going to be substituting a lot of this real sugar to some of these sweeteners that are non-caloric. So this is going to be particular to a lot of interest of our audience as well. And actually, before we jump into the different types of sweeteners, Dr. Walters just wanted to, to talk to you. So why does the sweetness itself matter? What's the sweetness of these individual products? Well, we've evolved to, to like sweetness because it's a signal in, in our food that there probably are calories there. It's a, it's a sign of carbohydrates, a sign of, of quick energy, and uh, so it's something that we've uh, evolved to, to want. And then kind of in, in simple terms, how, how do you determine, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of different substances today. How, how does one determine in a, a lab or research-based setting how sweet or not sweet a substance is? Well, the quantitating sweetness is something that, that people have been doing for a long time in the food industry because uh, we'd like to, to know how sweet something is when we're comparing to another product. And people have gotten used to using a scale based on sucrose. It's convenient because uh, 10% sucrose is about as sweet as a, as a can of, of uh, soft drink. 5%, maybe if you put a little bit of sugar in your coffee in the morning, that's about 5% sucrose equivalent. And people have trained 
panelists to use a 15 centimeter line scale with anchor points at 5 and 10 and just rate how sweet something is based on comparing to 1% sucrose solution, 2%, 5%, and so forth. Panelists can be trained to quantitate quite accurately, and, uh, and so it's a, it's a, a convenient scale. So we're not necessarily using, let's say, a test tube where we're detecting like how tightly a substance binds to some assay. It's more about uh, real world then. It's more about having human beings taste something and tell you what they're tasting. It's really actually quite hard to quantitate in the lab. Oh, really? It is. Okay. It's more complex than just a simple receptor. Then. It's, it's, a, it's a quite a complex process. So we're going to cover a number of sweeteners, but my understanding from the material that you've provided to us is that there's kind of four groups that we can kind of classify our sweeteners into. It's our carbohydrates like sucrose, our polyols or our sugar alcohols, our synthetic sweeteners, and then naturally occurring sweeteners. So I thought maybe we could kick it off with our carbohydrate-based sweeteners, and you've already mentioned one, sucrose, um, which seems like kind of the, the standard time equals zero, if you will, of the sweeteners that are available to us. Then. That's that's the reference that everybody uses because it's the most commonly used one in, in, in food systems for, for a long, long time. I know, but I'm thinking sucrose, you know, in the simple terminology, I'm thinking of sugar cane. So, you know, the sugar that's sitting on your table, that table of sugar is basically your sucrose. That's right. Whether it came from sugar cane or, or sugar beets or wherever it came from, sucrose is, is table sugar. So, yeah, so you'll sometimes see on packages that say it contains beet sugar. So you're saying that's exactly the same, the same thing there? It's, it's crystallized sucrose. What about molasses? Molasses, uh, as you uh, purify the sucrose out of uh, sugar cane or sugar beets, the residue that's left behind still has quite a bit of, of sucrose in it. That's, so that's molasses. Okay. And, you know, when we think about TPNs and things like that, most pharmacists are aware that this is four kilocalories per gram. We'll talk about some of the caloric contents of other items as well. Moving on, then, we also have fructose, which uh, is uh, more naturally occurring in, let's say, uh, a fruit, as the name would suggest, right? That's right, yes. Uh, sucrose is actually composed of two sugars, fructose and glucose hooked together. So fructose is one component of sucrose. And it's, it's quite common in, in fruits. Okay. And then from a biologic standpoint, when you, you know, consume fructose versus sucrose, is there any difference in how the body interprets that or utilizes that energy? Uh, it's still four calories per gram, four kilocalories per gram. It gets turned into, it can get turned into glucose, but it's done fairly slowly. So uh, if you use fructose instead of, of sucrose or glucose, you won't get as fast a, a rise in blood glucose. Okay. So that's important for diabetics. So it validates the point when I tell my patients that it's okay if your daily sugars are coming from fruits rather than, you know, adding, um, eating food that are used or made with added sugar. Yes. And I think that kind of dovetails back to a previous episode we did, and I was thinking about this in preparation. So when we look at the dietary guidelines and how now they're looking at added sugars as being the thing to watch for, and they specifically talk about watching added sugars versus fruits. And so this kind of makes sense now going back and looking, okay, so if fruit sugars are fructose and maybe causing fewer spikes, that'll explain why we're not just focusing on sugar globally, but on those added sugars that are added. Right. And then the next one we have is dextrose or glucose. How, how does this compare to some of the other ones? Uh, it's actually a little less sweet than, than sucrose or fructose. Fructose is a little bit sweeter, glucose a little less sweet than sucrose, and that's the one that diabetics have to be careful of. That's the one that uh, that tends to spike sometimes and can cause trouble. Okay. 
Um, and this is also the one that diabetics are going to be able to get tablets for, you know, for hypoglycemia and things like that. That's right. kind of how it's prepared as well. Right. So kind of in the opposite way of, you know, when you're really low, then you want this rapid-acting sugar that That's right. produces this profound effects. And I think one that I, this would be one that the audience, at least for me, that you always think about is what about corn syrup? And so I think that's when you hear a lot about, you know, what's got corn syrup in it, the good and the bad of it. So what exactly is corn syrup? There are different kinds of corn syrup. So if you just take pure corn syrup, K-Row syrup, or something like that, corn contains a lot of starch. The starch gets uh, broken down into the component sugars, which are all strings of glucose. Uh, so plain corn syrup is a lot of glucose. Uh, it, it also contains some disaccharides of glucose and trisaccharides, but it's, it's, it's all glucose. Then we get to high fructose corn syrup, and what happens there is that the processors first turn the cornstarch into glucose, and then they add an enzyme that will interconvert glucose and fructose so that some of the glucose gets turned into fructose. Fructose is sweeter than the glucose, so it increases the, the overall sweetness of the product. And uh, so when you get to high fructose corn syrup, about 55% of that is fructose and 45% glucose. So from the bottom line of... I guess in terms of calories are being worse for you. Is there any difference in terms of high fructose versus regular old corn syrup in terms of what's worse for the individual to have or what's healthier? Well, the high fructose corn syrup, having some fructose is going to be better for a diabetic than, than plain corn syrup. In terms of comparing it to other sugars, things like sucrose is not that much different from, from sucrose because sucrose is 50-50 fructose and glucose. High fructose corn syrup is 45 and 55. And then in terms of calories and overconsumption, we're still looking at the number of calories rather than one versus the other in terms of diets. It, the big problem is the total calories, not uh, which kind of, of corn syrup you're eating. So, Dr. Walters, is there an economic reason to have this high fructose corn syrup versus the corn syrup? Because it seems like an additional step in there. It's an additional step, but you get a, such a, a boost in the overall sweetness by changing some of that low-sweetness glucose into high-sweetness high fructose hmm. that economic, economically it pays off for the producers. And to just have 100% fructose would be cost-prohibitive? I've always wondered why we don't make cookies out of fructose. Ah, okay. Why don't we make cookies out of fructose? Pure fructose doesn't behave quite the same as, as sucrose when, you, when you're preparing products with it. It, it binds moisture a little bit differently, okay. behaves a little bit differently. So from a, especially like a baking perspective, you know, some of these sugars can behave differently in, yeah. how, in how you prepare a cookie, for example. Right. Pure sucrose might give you a little more crunch in your, in your cookie. Fructose or, or glucose syrup might give you a, a little gooier oh, product. And who doesn't like gooey cookies, right? <laughs> but I think the conclusion from our uh, discussion here is that overall, we should still be watching the amount of sugar. It doesn't matter where it comes from. Right. Now, there is one product that, you know, technically falls under the carbohydrate category, but I, I've heard a lot about it um, with some of the kind of talk shows where they talk about, you know, how to eat healthier and make smoothies and th things like that. And one of those products is agave nectar. And a lot of what I hear about that is the glycemic index, which we talked about, is that rapid spike in glucose in your blood. Um, what can you tell us about agave nectar versus any of the other carbohydrate-based sweeteners? Well, agave nectar is uh, essentially sugar, but it's about 90% fructose. So the, the agave plant produces most of its sugar in the form of fructose, just like a lot of fruits do. So it's, it's, it's very, very sweet, and the fructose is, has a, a lower glycemic index. 
That's and so sweet. if it's sweeter, then I assume that means you don't have to use as much of an amount of it. So therefore, the company, they can probably put just a little in and perhaps then that may, may have fewer calories if you don't need as much. You'll save a few calories. It's uh, Fructose is about 30% sweeter than glucose. It's not a big difference. Okay. I think the advantage here would be that low glycemic index because of the fructose nature over here. Right. That it might be better in diabetics. It's not causing these spikes in the sugar, but at the end of the day, you still get the same calories, but at a very nice, smoother fashion curve. There's one other thing before we move on from the carbohydrate-based sweeteners, and it's using some of the soft drinks as an example. I know that some of the Pepsi products have had a throwback where they include basically sucrose as opposed to the high fructose corn syrup and things like that. From your point of view as a sweetener expert, do you view this as 100% marketing ploy? Or is, is there some reason from a taste perspective or a glycemic index perspective or a cost from the manufacturer perspective why they would be doing some of these things? I'd say it's about 99% marketing. Really? Because yeah. of the bad press with high fructose corn syrup? Right. Or... right. Got it, got it. Mm -hmm. All right, well, I think we'll move on now to the second group of these. And this is the one, Dr. Walters, I'm most excited to talk about because I've heard about it. You, you read about them, the, the sugar alcohols or the polyol. So I guess can we talk about how, how are they any different than our carbohydrate-based sugars? So chemically, they're a lot like carbohydrate sugars. They're just a little bit different. So they're not easily metabolized by the human body. Some of them we can turn into glucose, at least partially. Uh, some of them are, are not so well absorbed, and that also contributes to their lower caloric content. So things like sorbitol, we, we can absorb a certain amount of sorbitol. We can convert a certain amount of it into glucose, but it's not a very efficient process for us. So instead of getting four, four kilocalories per gram, we're getting maybe two and a half. Just for the audience, you know, there's a lot of sugar alcohols. What would you say are some of the top ones that you would see in common products that a consumer might purchase? You would see things like sorbitol, xylitol, mannitol, uh, lactitol. And as the, the name would suggest, the sugar alcohol, typically these are going to end in OL to indicate right. the alcohol. That's right. Okay. So the idea here is getting the same amount of sweetness for your tongue, but less calories for your body. Exactly. And and the other thing that, that the, the, the uh, polyols do that uh, high-potency sweeteners can't do is provide some, some bulk. So if, if you were to take out the sugar from a cake and bake it with a, a high-potency sweetener like aspartame or sucralose, it would be flat. You wouldn't have anything to hold the moisture and to, to contribute bulk to that product. And so if you're talking about bulking, I'm assuming that's part of where I, I know I, I've heard that if you, and it says on some of the packaging, that too much uh, use of something like xylitol may have an almost a laxative-like effect. Is that coming from some of its ability to draw in water? It's it's partly due to the, 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 that property, yes. The, so the, the polyols can provide some bulk to your food product, give it some substance. Uh, it can hold the moisture the way you would expect to happen in, in things like cakes and cookies. The fact that we're not absorbing them very efficiently means that some of the, some of it will be left behind in the in the gut, and once once you get to the lower intestine where all the bacteria live, they love that stuff. So they they start fermenting it, they start turning it into gases and and low molecular weight acids, and those also have an osmotic effect that draw water into the bowel. So you can get some gas and some diarrhea if you consume too many of these products. And if 
I understand correctly, the term for this is the laxative threshold. Is that correct? Yes, people have actually done experiments and measured the, the laxative threshold value for a lot of these polyols. Yeah, I feel like I would have preferred to be part of the study cohort that looks at the sweetness of it rather than the laxative <laughs> threshold. Yeah, that mm -hmm. looks very descriptive. Yes. So in comparing some of these sugar alcohols, is there a sugar alcohol that is, let's say, has the lowest or the, the worst laxative threshold or the best one or one that has the fewest calories or the most calories, anything that you could tell us to kind of help uh, kind of compare and contrast some of these alcohols? I think Dr. Kane is trying to ask you which one's the best one out uh -huh. Yes. And, and this is a difficult question to answer because while they publish these, these laxative threshold values, those are average values and individual mileage varies a lot. Uh, even from one day to another, depending on, on what bacteria are living inside you on a given day, sometimes those polyols can cause you a lot of trouble, and sometimes they don't bother you a bit. And a, a lot of person-to-person -person variation as well. So is there a particular one, on average, I guess, that is the worst from a laxative standpoint? Or, let's say, a, a top contender? So if, if you look at the, uh, the the laxative threshold values that are published for these, maltitol has a very high laxative threshold value, so that means it's one of the less uh, laxative ones. You would have to consume a lot to have that effect. Uh, mannitol is one of the worst. 10 to 20 grams of mannitol can, can cause you trouble. Xylitol also fairly high on the list. Uh, sorbitol near the top. Erythritol is, is actually one of the better ones. Okay. And in terms of calories, I know that you said that some are kind of better absorbed or better processed into a glucose-like molecule. Are some of them, you know, more caloric versus less caloric, or are they all about the same? There's a lot of variation, and again, a lot of that is person-to-person -person variation and day-to-day -day variation for a given person. In the U.S., we've we've gone on the basis of, of some laboratory experiments, and sorbitol is, is considered to have 2.6 calories per gram. Uh, on the other end of the scale, erythritol, almost none, 0 0.2. In the, in the uh, European Union, they consider all of these measurements too approximate, and they just classify everything at the same value. I think it's 2.4. And that would explain, because that's one of the things I always hear about, is you hear a lot of people saying zero calorie, and I've seen certain ones with erythritol, and it says, you know, zero calorie sweetener. And so what you're saying seems to corroborate that, but then at the same time, you have others saying, oh, that's not true. You could be getting a ton of calories from these. And I guess it all stems from the ability to just take a certain number and apply it across the board. Yes, it's, it's, it's a real problem with these because of the person-to-person -person variation, uh, and it's so dependent on your bacterial flora. Uh, erythritol is, is probably the, uh, the odd one out here because it's uh, the smallest of the polyols that are used, and that one actually does get absorbed quite efficiently, but it's not metabolized by humans at all, and it's uh, easily excreted in the urine. So to pick on another one, xylitol, this one, I know you mentioned that a lot of these are broken down by the bacteria into different kinds of acids, and yet I, I've heard something about this one being beneficial in terms of the mouth and saying, okay, chew gums with xylitol, then it's maybe better. Why Why that one? Why is that different? Uh, it seems to be a little different. Uh, actually, if you look at the studies in terms of, of xylitol preventing dental caries, the amount of xylitol you would have to consume is quite large to, to see a clinical effect uh, dentally. But I'm sure that doesn't stop some of the marketing efforts. It has, yes, it does not stop the marketing. And that's why we have experts like you come in here and clarify questions that our audience may have. Um, moving forward, I'm actually really excited to talk about the, some of the artificial, or we call it synthetic sweeteners, because that's where the market is revolving around. And some of the agents in this category are aspartame, which is branded as Equal, or sucralose, branded as Splenda. So... 
as the name would suggest, I would assume that these have no chemical, you know, derivation from a glucose-like molecule. Is that correct? Well, it's it, almost correct. Sucralose is actually made by chlorinating sucrose. You replace three of the hydroxyl groups on, on sucrose with chlorine atoms, and it uh, magically becomes 600 times as sweet as sugar. Wow. You said 600 times. About 600 times, yes. Wow. And it's no longer metabolizable by the human body. can't be turned into calories at all. So you're telling me that sucralose is much, much, much sweeter, and it has zero caloric effect in the human body. That's right. If we were to compare that to aspartame in terms of the sweetness and the caloric value, what would that be? Aspartame is a, is a dipeptide, so it's, it's made out of amino acids. actually has four calories per gram like carbohydrates, but it's 200 times as sweet as sugar, so the amount that you use is negligible in terms of calorie contribution to the product. And I know, at least with aspartame in particular, there's always been a lot of press and media about cancer risk in rats with aspartame or seizures or hypoglycemia or weight gain among uh, aspartame users, things like that. Where do you kind of weigh in on some of the, the media reports with aspartame, but really with any of the synthetic sweeteners? A lot of the the concern that consumers have had over the years began with saccharin when it, when saccharin was shown to cause uh, bladder tumors in uh, laboratory rats. That sort of raised red flags for everybody on, on, on sweeteners. turns out that saccharin only causes tumors in male rats and doesn't, does not do this in any other species, doesn't do it in, in female rats. It's a specific condition that these rats have, a, a protein that's in their urine, the pH of their urine, and adding lots of saccharin into that mix caused crystallization of, of, of stuff sort of a protein and, and saccharin complex that irritated the bladder and caused these, these tumors. And just for clarity, saccharin may be better known under sweet and low, is that correct? Sweet and low uh, uses saccharin as its sweetener, yes. Right, so we've, and we, I know we've largely moved away for the most part from sweet and low base to, to these others as aspartame and sucralose. So you're saying that the same study testing with these has kind of failed to replicate those findings with, with these newer molecules? Yes, aspartame has, has come up safe in, in virtually all the testing that's been done. There was one, uh, there was a report from a, a laboratory in Italy that claimed, uh, some, some cancer causing effect of aspartame, but the, those experiments turned out to be not very well done and, uh, the data just didn't support the results. And I think there was a big buzz in the um, cancer community about these co agents maybe causing, um, you know, issues like these. But a couple of years ago, American Cancer Society came out with a statement and said that these sweeteners, as far as the cancer risk goes, are pretty benign. Yeah. They're safe to use. Can you tell us anything about uh, some of the reports regarding weight gain with some of these synthetic sweeteners? Well, yes, it's uh, difficult to do these experiments in humans. Uh, if you're working with, with rats and mice, you can very easily control their diet. Uh, and depending how you set up your experiment, you can get varying results. But uh, when you get to humans, it gets really complicated because a human being, uh, like myself, might consume a, a diet soft drink and, and uh, save myself 150 calories and then say, I'm going to reward myself with a prize. And that's 400 calories of pure starch. 
It's like going to McDonald's, everything supersized, and then ordering a diet soda to compensate for what you have ordered. Yes. Um, very similar. And this is the point I drive home in my advanced diabetes management elective and to my patients too, that just because those cookies are made with Equal or they're made with Splenda, I shouldn't say Equal because aspartame is not very great in baking goods. That's Splenda right. is what's usually used. But just because they are you know, substituted with calorie-free type of sweeteners doesn't mean that you can have two pieces instead of one piece. Because remember, they're, they might still be using the good amount of fat in there, um, the flour that has carbohydrates in it too. So you're ultimately getting more calories if you try to eat more of the non-caloric sweetened foods versus just trying to limit the amount or portions you're eating with actual sugar contained food. So portion control still remains the mainstay of diet strategy in patients who have diabetes. Right. I remember when we were doing this actually as a journal club when I was a resident, that was one of the things about it is if I recall, so not a lot of the studies actually control for the calories in it. So you, again, you have the subjective, you know, looking at did you use diet sweetener? Yes, no, but not looking at the actual number of calories that the individual is consuming. So Dr. Patel, I think you that that was kind of the crux of, of when we were looking at it. I think that's still the case is if you could control for that, you, you would see. But so much of it is the individual subjective thought that, okay, yes, you know, I, I, I'm eating something sweet. Let's, you know, maybe, you know, continue to eat, you know, other things that either as rewards or because I think I'm safe now. And yeah, there, therein lies the real issue. So Dr. Walters, we kind of touched on this earlier that the idea of sweetness in terms of the body's response and how it detects sweetness is a very complex process. Given that these sweeteners, especially the synthetic sweeteners, don't have the caloric value, but they have this intense sweet potency. Um, is there any evidence that this hormonally impacts, let's say, insulin release or glucagon release that could negatively impact, let's say, a diabetic's blood sugar? There have been a lot of studies looking at different sweeteners in terms of do they or do they not impact insulin release. There are a lot of complications in doing those kinds of studies, and depending how you, how you set up your experiment, you sometimes can get different results. Most of those studies suggest that any uh, artificial sweeteners do not uh, significantly impact insulin. I think the really interesting thing that's being investigated now is how they might impact th things like your, your sense of satiety uh, or your appetite. Those studies are still, still uh, ongoing, and, and we don't know the answers there yet. But I think those are going to be the really interesting ones. And I would guess if I was the owner of Aspartame's patent, I wouldn't be super excited to run studies that could potentially take my product and put it in a negative light, given that, let's say, you have a good market share and there's a potential that people could be less excited about using a synthetic sweetener if they knew that it would make them not feel full, that they would be more likely to eat more food. Yeah, the, the, the industry is not going to run those studies. There are people in universities doing the, those studies. There's a, a, a lot of work being done right now, and uh, uh, we should have some, some answers soon. Although it's, it's a complicated process. Uh, whenever you have human perceptions and behaviors coming into play, it's, it's, it's a, a complicated situation. All right, so I think thus far we've talked about artificial sweeteners. We've talked about our, our more natural, you know, table sugar type sweeteners, and we talked about our polyols. So I think the last one to talk about is going to be these kind of, quote, natural sweeteners. And I know the big one I, I thought, and this is another one that I'm really, I'm really excited to talk about, is going to be stevia or the stevicides. So, so where did this all come from? I know just in the last few years, it was also, no, we've got this non-absorbable disaccharide. It's based on, a, it's this plant leaf and it's great. Where, where did it all come from? 
this is uh, from people studying natural products and, and looking at what natural products are being consumed in, in other cultures and other societies. Uh, stevia side is a, a, a terpene glycoside that comes from a, a leaf that's found in, in uh, parts of South America. It's uh, quite sweet. It's a, a few hundred times as sweet as sucrose. The taste quality, it, quality is not as good as sucrose. Sucrose has a pretty fast onset, and then it clears out of your mouth fairly quickly. Uh, the steviaside, rubidioside type sweeteners tend to be a little bit slower in onset, and then linger in your mouth a little longer. Uh, so if you're putting it in a soft drink, you immediately get the, the sour from the acid in the soft drink, and you get the bitter from the caffeine, if there's caffeine in it. And then the sweetness happens, instead of getting it all at once like you would expect. The other... actually, that's actually really interesting how you say that, is that it's not even just that 15 centimeter scale anymore. It's really added another a, a time component almost to the sweetness of a product. Yes, it's the fourth dimension, that time. <laughs> and, uh, and it turns out to be quite important. In fact, there are proteins from African plants that are thousands of times as sweet as sucrose, but their onset is so slow and the linger is so long that you really couldn't use them in anything except maybe chewing gum. So in terms of using, let's say, a natural sweetener versus an artificial sweetener, aside from this time onset, are there any other kind of comparisons between the two? Well, the other thing that happens with, with these plant-based sweeteners is for some people, they have a little bit of a, a licorice taste that people, some people like and some people don't. And for a percentage of the population, there's a bitter taste. A sweet taste, we, we have a sweet taste receptor and we detect sweetness. But for bitterness, we have about 30 different bitter taste receptors, and I might have 20 of them, and you might have 20, but we might not have the same 20. And so some things that taste bitter to me wouldn't taste bitter to you. Uh, you might get a bitter taste from broccoli, and I don't. Uh, so, so some people get a bitter taste from these, these stevia side type sweeteners, and some people don't. So it's a very patient-specific decision in terms of which agent and, you know, Obviously, the food that you're putting it in or the drink that you're putting it in matters a lot and things like that. Yes, there, there is person-to-person -person variation. And usually, this is what I tell to my patients, too, when I'm recommending a low-salt diet or low-sweetness diet, if we're, I were to say that, that give your taste buds at least 14 days to be adapting to the newer change that you've made before dismissing and say, I do not like it. Is that something? Am I giving them the good time reference for our taste buds to adapt to the new taste? I would say two to four weeks. It, it will take that long to adapt to a change in, in the sweetness content of your diet. And then from what you mentioned about, you know, sodas, for example, looking at the acid in there and the caffeine. So I'm assuming then also the nature of the food itself. So that if you say, well, I can't have, you know, an artificial sweetener in my, let's say, let's say yogurt versus soda, there may be differences there in the individual's perception. So if you had an aversion to it in one food, it may not necessarily be the same in another. Yeah, the context matters. It, it really does. So I want to be respectful of your time. But to kind of summarize what we've heard today, it sounds like, Glycemic index is probably important with our carbohydrate-based sugars, but aside from that, calorically, uh, they're pretty similar. Sweetness-wise, they're fairly similar. Yeah, it also sounds like then, you know, in, despite, you know, whatever you may be using as your, your source of you student to be aware of, you know, regardless of how sweet it tastes, regardless of low calorie or no calorie, the idea is still about being careful of the overall calories in that food beyond just the sweetener. So if it's got a whole bunch of other carbohydrate sources, then it's still got a whole bunch of other carbohydrate sources. That's right.
And as far as the safety of some of these sweeteners go, we talked about the cancer risk or hypoglycemia risk. We know most of the studies that are done in the cancer arena have dismissed those um, risks or possibilities, and there are still some studies being done in the diabetes arena where we're looking at you know insulin release or possibility of um, weight gain and things like that. And and there's still a lot to learn in terms of of our how we sense nutrients. Uh, it turns out that there, these taste receptors are not just in your, on your tongue. They are all through your, your small intestine as well. And so they're involved in sensing nutrients as they come, come down. The sweet taste receptor actually responds to sweeteners in, in the intestine and will produce more glucose transporters, uh, if, if you, if it thinks that you've got more sweetness coming, coming down the pipe. So, Dr. Walters, to wrap up, I, I just have two things. First is, if someone wants to know more about kind of the science of sweetness, where would be the best place to get more information? Well, I, I, I think that my, my book is a pretty good source of information. I also have a, a, a web pay, website, uh, sweetenerbook.com, that has a lot of information on it as well. Wonderful. And then, sometimes in my clinic, too, I point my patients to go to diabetes.org and click on food and fitness. Under that tab, you see a lot of different information about non-caloric sweeteners, what it's, uh, the glycemic index means, what are the different type of carbohydrates, etc. They should be consuming good versus bad versus ugly type information. So in my opinion, I think that's a good source for patients, too. So then the final question I have for you is, on a given weekend, if you were to make a batch of chocolate chip cookies, what sweetener are you going to be putting in those cookies? I use white sugar. The, the key is moderation, always moderation, whether nice. it's the high-potency sweeteners or the polyols or carbohydrates. And moderation is a good thing. That's the point we are trying to drive home here. Sure. Well, let's put your feet to the fire just a little bit. Let's say that you had to cut the caloric content by half, and you had to replace at least half of that sucrose with something different. In, in a baking application, yes, I would just eat half as many cookies. <laughs> I, I cannot put our man of principle. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Walters, we all really appreciate your yes, expertise yes. and your time. Thank, Thank you, you very you so much. much. Thank, Thank you. you. So with that, I'm going to sign off. I'm Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Schumann. And I'm Dr. Patel. And as always, thank you, Dr. Walters. And students, please study hard. If you enjoyed the show, please help us climb the iTunes rankings for medical podcasts by giving us a five-star review in the iTunes store. Search for Helix Talk and place your review there. To suggest an episode or contact us, we're online at helixtalk.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Helix Talk. This is an educational production, copyright Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science.